This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Jim Fadiman. Jim is an author, an educator, and is America's leading expert on the science of microdosing. During our conversation, Jim talks about his relationship with his favorite Harvard professor, Richard Alpert, later Ram Dass, his first psychedelic experience, and why he decided to dedicate so much of his career to the study of psychedelics and microdosing. Jim also discusses the Fadiman Protocol for Microdosing, what microdosing is and proper dosing and frequency of use, microdosing's potential for human well-being, creativity, and to combat mental illness, and how a healthy society might wisely integrate such practices into its civilization. Jim believes that our culture is growing more open to the potential promise of psychedelics, and I think he's right. Documentaries like Netflix's How to Change Your Mind and books like his, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, offer knowledge that has been suppressed and demonized to be more accurately detailed and publicly available. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jim Fadiman. Jim, it is such a an honor and a joy to uh, to meet you and to have you on the show. Um, as I was mentioning before we started recording, this is a a subject matter and just a conversation I've been interested in having for quite some time. Welcome to the show. It's it's really wonderful to have you on. Well, it's 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 about time. <laughs> I've been waiting. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Right. Um, I thought it might be helpful, and I like to do this with all of all the guests that come on the show, just to give you know a proper background as to what brought you to the level of of interest and curiosity about the subject that we're going to talk primarily about today, which is your your really career in psychedelic research and in microdosing. You know, when you think back on your own life, how do you? think of the genesis story of how you even got interested in this stuff in the first place well i don't think my story in that way is different from almost everyone i know in psychedelic research which is personal experience first career shifting second yeah and um and then exploring in whatever direction probably you were you know you had a capacity for in the first place so my interest in psychedelics and knowledge of psychedelics before I had an initial experience was zero. Yeah. And my interest in altered states of consciousness was equally low. Um, and my general belief that reality extended beyond what I could understand or perceive was also, um, that was an assumption. Yeah. Uh, all of that, of course, was dead wrong, um, because reality is obviously a lot more interesting than you know, than my perceptual limitations. So, um, yeah, I was thinking of uh, Bill Richards, who was one of the great um, guides of psychedelics and from from the from the early pre 
pre-illegal days. And he talks about his first experience um, as a, a, I think, graduate student in theology. He just signed up for somebody's study. And he defines his life in two slices before that day and after. And uh, I'm in that group. Yeah. Do you remember the details of that first time? And and how did it hit you? What What's memorable about that experience for you personally? Well, the first time actually was just a, a kind of wake up call that that uh, my view of reality was limited. Mm. And that was in I was living in Paris. I was writing a, a novel, which even I knew wasn't very good. <laughs> and I was having a wonderful life. I was living uh there was a book out called Europe on $5 a day, and I rarely spent that much. So I was living very quietly, and my ex-professor, my favorite professor, uh, Richard Alpert, who later became Ramdas, uh, showed up in Paris, and he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. Well, what would you say? <laughs> so I said, no, and he then, and I thought he was going to tell me a story. Yeah. And instead, he opens his jacket and takes out a little bottle of pills. And at that point, I'm so straight, I don't drink coffee. Um, but what do you do when someone says that to you and puts a pill in your hand? Um, and so that that evening, which was a, what we would now call a moderate dose of psilocybin, um, opened up my awareness that the, the, the self-concept I had was simply very limited, and that my attachments to um, my kind of pretentiousness um, to being of interest and so forth were were incredibly shallow. Now, skip forward a few remarkably interesting weeks, and my draft board and I made an agreement, which is if I went to graduate school, they would not send me to Vietnam. Mm. I felt that was patriotic on both sides, as I would have been a terrible soldier. <clears throat> um, and a few weeks at Stanford, I met people working at something called the International Foundation for Advanced Study, a, a little suite of offices above a beauty parlor in Menlo Park, and two doors down from a Christian science reading room, and around the corner from a bakery. So this was not um, this was not a massive um, institution, but on uh, October sixteenth, nineteen sixty one, I had a what I would call now a full psychedelic experience where the where my identity of being Jim Fadiman was transcended. And that what I realized that I was part of a of a kind of larger entity, which was actually connected to to not only every living thing, but everything. A kind of classic mystical experience of unity or interconnectedness. Um, and I am very grateful that I've never recovered. Yeah. So that I, that that took my interest from conventional psychology, which I wasn't that interested in anyway, into this area of what is consciousness and what can you how can you best understand the actual world we live in. Yeah. I think for many listeners they will they may recognize the name Richard Alpert and they certainly will recognize the name Ramdas. You yeah. mentioned the name Bill Richards as well and I thought it might be helpful just to give you an opportunity to give some context as to who those two men were. They're they're rather famous historical figures in the psychedelic, you know, movement. But for people that have never heard them or heard about them or don't know them particularly well, how would you describe those two men? 
Well, Richard Alpert was an assistant professor uh, of psychology and education at Harvard. And he was um, a very determined. He was a very fine lecturer and a very nice human being. Um, and, and he came from a wealthy East Coast family who didn't think being a psychologist was impressive and being at Harvard was barely impressive. Hmm. Um, and he was a, a teacher of mine and we became friends. And he later, um, after he had worked with psychedelics for a number of years, he actually went to India and um, met what he called his guru and changed his name, uh, as the guru suggested, to be uh, a name which means basically the servant of God. And he then, from the rest of his life, uh, became what we would call a spiritual teacher. In this case, um, talking, lecturing, grooving with people. He worked for a long time um, in hospices, working with people who were dying. Um, and he became a very important spiritual figure in the United States, predominantly. Yeah. But he left psychedelics behind, and that was puzzling to me, but he did, and we may talk about it uh, in the context of this program. Uh, Bill Richards is a psychologist who, in the, in the 60s, when psychedelics were still legal, worked in a clinical setting in Spring Grove, Maryland, um, with Stan Groff, another important figure. And Bill Richards was gifted at being with people who were undergoing this in this overwhelmingly uh, eye-opening psychedelic experience uh, and was also equally gifted and it's a different gift in training other people and when the psychedelics became uh, of interest again to the general public uh, bill richards was still around and trained uh, most of the guides uh, at most of the locations on the East Coast where psychedelic research is now ongoing. Yeah. Uh, and there was a recent uh, documentary on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind. Um, there's a wonderful sequence where, where Bill, uh, at the end of a description of, of many nice things, he says, and my son is taking over, you know, is also now a guide and a, and a PhD psychologist uh, in in these clinical settings, mm. so uh, Bill Richards is a is a lineage uh, of compassionate, open minded uh, guides who who understand that the value of a psychedelic experience is not in what the therapist knows, but in removing any obstacles between the individual and their own consciousness. Yeah. Now, I want to get back to your own chronology after you know your exposure to to Richard Alpert and and the psilocybin experience that you mentioned in, in Europe. But before we do that, I I think I am correct, and I think you may have just mentioned this that you know Bill initially was in either theology school or was deeply interested in you know re formal religion prior okay. to his you know experience in the psychedelic world. How how do you make sense of that impulse that he seemed to have had as a human being and his pursuit of psychedelics what what is the link between you know and it, from his perspective theology and psychedelics in terms of what it can elicit in a in a human spirit and a human person well most of the major religions um are based on the individual experience of a single person yeah 
And that single person um, usually has pretty much the same experience in these different traditions. Uh, however, it is then translated back into kind of day-to-day -day life in very different ways. So um, probably um, we know the, the story of Jesus who is, is in the desert, uh, basically on a spiritual quest for a number of weeks. And in that altered states that one gets in the desert, especially if you're fasting, um, he has a visionary experience uh, and uh, becomes, again, a, a teacher which is an, a kind of a, a classy way of saying he wanted to share what happened with him. Yeah. A little bit like when you've been on an interesting vacation uh, <laughs> and you say to your friends, I want to tell you all about Nepal. Now, <laughs> now, they don't think you're a teacher. They think you're kind of a bore. <laughs> but really what you're doing is saying, I had something really exciting that meaningful happened to me and I want to share it with you. And most major religions are the same. Um Islam is probably a little more curious, where Muhammad, again, um, had been deeply in, engrossed in spiritual practices, uh, and then began to have what he called uh, visitations from an archangel who told him to write certain things down. Now, this was particularly awkward because he couldn't write, yeah. but he remembered real well, and he would tell someone who wrote it down, and from that, um, we get the Quran, and the Quran is very favorable, uh, very favorable discussions of both Abraham and Jesus. In fact, the question is, why did we need what was called the final prophet? And uh, the Islamic answer is because it looked like Christians and Jews were not following their own religious uh, precepts and were not basically didn't turn out to be such wonderful, nice people, mm. especially when they're you know when you're at war with them. So we have um, that classic experience, which is the same, which is the loss of individual self and the awareness that that is, um, that is more true than the, the feeling of individual self, um, what the Buddhists call delusion, which is what we call personal identity. Mm. So, so what happened with Bill Richards is his background was theology, and he therefore looked again at what he had been learning, but through a new lens. And my background or my foreground, I was a graduate student in psychology, so I looked at psychology through this new lens. Hmm. Um, and in the, so that the personal background of an individual prior to a major psychedelic experience is, um, is not that relevant. But it is what obviously we all start with um, when we have a major experience. Yeah, and you obviously were no different from that. That you, you your trajectory was um, altered significantly by your own experiences. And I, I think where we left off in your own chronology was going back to the Bay Area. Yeah, um, and take it from there. What, what do you remember about what you were hoping to accomplish in? how a psychedelic experience influenced you what did you think was there that was worth exploring and and perhaps pushing and researching well initially i had the same experience as many people do which is i wanted to kind of stand on the hilltop and shout <laughs> everybody should have this experience um but then it, it also was very clear to me that i was a first year graduate student in psychology 
um, which is about which is not a very high position, not only in the culture but in the in the graduate world as well. Yeah. Um, and and my major uh, life goal at that point was basically to stay in graduate school and not go to Vietnam. So I had to balance my basically survival as a graduate student with my becoming way way more interested um, in mystical experience and in altered states and in methods that people had used over the years to to either have such experiences or at least to to um, to spread them to catalog them to to uh, present them. Yeah. So I was busy reading uh, early Russian mystical literature. For example, I was also reading a book called uh, Many Lives of Milarepa. Milarepa was the first, um, brought brought Buddhism to Tibet and came from a terrible background. Milarepa was just a bad person. He was a sorcerer, which meant that he caused hailstones on his neighbor's fields. He was just, a, he was like a, you know, kind of a spiritual criminal. Um, and, and again, his life story turns it around and becomes a great teacher, etc., so I was exploring that in the evenings. And in the daytime, I was wearing a, a coat and tie, um, which distinguished me among the graduate students as straight and boring, um, and going to classes and saying as little as possible. Yeah. the This is something in the research I did for this conversation that I, I couldn't quite find, and I wanted to ask you, what what were your religious views at that time let's say prior to the interaction with richard alpert and in, in i think it was in paris right did you have a firm perspective on religion or god at that point in your life um i was i had actually joined as an undergraduate at harvard the unitarian universalist fellowship yeah and this was about as un um dogmatic as one could get those days which is they really were um i would say they had they had a very large bookstore before you entered the church and the bookstore was just full of both self-help books and books from different religious traditions uh philosophy books so they were a kind of thinking person's um version of religion and i remember one of their kind of iconoclastic sermons was why should we meet every seven days What's so special about Sunday? It was that kind of a group. So it was full of nice people who had no interest in any conventional religious tradition, but felt that it would be nice to be with friends on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was, I was definitely, um, if I if I expressed any position at all, it would have been agnostic, which is I didn't know much, but um, but it looked like that the spiritual traditions had at that point seemed to be. Uh, fairly positive and for many people yeah so, so well l let me tell you one moment in my in my large experience which clarified my religious views very very simply um there's a point in in these uh high experiences when you are aware that you have a consciousness but you don't have a form and i was aware that i was in a universe almost of total darkness not not negative just there wasn't light and then there was a tiny tiny light like 10 million miles away like a star and i turned myself towards it and flew towards that light and as i approached in front of me was jesus arms outstretched compassion radiating from every pore 
And I thought to myself, this is really awkward because, <laughs> you know, I'm not into this at all, but, but here it is. And I guess, you know, my life may change very rapidly. And I flew towards this Jesus and flew past. And I looked behind and what I saw was the Jesus was a, like a, a cutout. Mm. You know, when you, uh, when you have a, on a, on a stage, you have a canvas and a spine printed on it and back of the canvas, you've tied it around and there's, there's one by fours and so forth. Um, that's what I saw. I saw the backside and then went on towards the light, which was a totally transcendent experience without any religious form. And as I reflected on it, it occurred to me that other people having a similar experience from different backgrounds, because I came from a you know very Christian, um, visible nation, would perhaps find Buddha or uh, any of the uh, the other gods, including you might find Zeus. Who knows? Uh, but you, but again, those were the 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 front men, the kind of come on into the big tent people. And from that point on, I've been very, um, I'm much more interested in how people live whatever their religion is than what they talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Actions over words. Yeah. And, and in a sense, there is only, uh, words are actions too, but actions uh, that are resonant with words seem to be what interests me. Yeah. You mentioned a few minutes ago the documentary which i have seen and i think might be really a cultural touchstone for posterity and for the future which is the how to change your mind netflix documentary i loved that book i mentioned before we started recording i've talked to jeff gus who was featured in that book and led the psilocybin trials at nyu you also mentioned that when you started exploring this realm of human inquiry it was prior to the illegality of many of these substances. And I know you lived through kind of the dark, the dark, um, the, the, the dark ages, of, the 40 years of wandering in the desert and wondering Correct. how to get here. Yes. And I yeah. know there's so much that must have happened during that time. But for people that are, are unfamiliar with the 70s, 80s, 90s, what sticks with you about what? happened during that time what we may have lost how do you how do you make sense of all of the the lost opportunities and lost time obviously some people were doing research like like i know that you were um how do you make sense of that that era in general well it's a little bit like what we're now doing with climate change is when you that time actually matters and that when you lose a time of of possibilities um, those times don't reoccur. Hmm. So right now we lost 40 years of seeing psychedelics as we're now seeing them as potentially remarkable tools for really um, helping us in both mental health, physical health, and what's called enhanced wellness. We lost all of those, not only all of those years, but all of the really literally millions of people who could have been helped and we also and if i look at the 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 culture in general what we have lost is optimism and i just have been um, helping get that published uh, a lecture that that abraham maslow the father of both humanistic and transpersonal psychologies 
uh, gave in 1969. And it's incredibly cheerful and optimistic and upbeat and full of examples of how the culture is changing, how education is becoming relevant, um, how the growth centers are becoming part of the culture. It's, it's, it's strident optimism. Yeah. And I don't see that today. And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a species wide shift. And yeah. that perhaps, you know, and that part of what we lost was the, um, the, the advantages that psychedelic experiences have had both for healthy people and for ill ones. Yeah. I think this is in part why I have had, you know, quite a few episodes about these subjects because to me it's a it's an area of great hope for people and I think I don't know if you would agree with with this but so much of perhaps why there is such pessimism and I I would agree with you right now in America not not in every single form of life but in general I think you get a sense of that is that so many people are not well uh they don't feel well and i think they're often uh, a bit adrift spiritually and this is in you know area of of hope just for me personally that i have for for the country um i want to get into that because i know you know so much of i think the work that you have done is being you know it's it's taken a lot of energy on your side to continue with this that you must have held a conviction that there were elements to the these experiences that could really help people and could really improve their quality of life and yeah. to me it's there there's well, it's a- the the question for me was once psychedelics were made illegal and it didn't occur to me to uh, to kind of go underground yeah um, i'm kind of a legal guy and when you work legally illegal doesn't have the same attractiveness um but what i had to say is if i and many other people had learned something from psychedelics um could we apply that in the culture and if you look at the 60s uh through an optimistic lens that's the beginning of the women's movement that's the beginning of the social justice movement that's the beginning of the ecology movement and the anti-war movement and those were all fueled by people with psychedelic experiences so those were the, these major thrusts toward making the planet both a better place physically and a better place emotionally. Um, and that work continues. So one of the things I was involved in is, is starting really a, helping to start a school of psychology called transpersonal, meaning beyond the personal or the personality, because psychology had decided um, that spiritual experiences um, were first of all unimportant and second of all likely pathological mm. um, and since that wasn't my experience and the experience of thousands of others um, there was a hunger for a psychology that was covered all of human experience and all of human experience meant not only um, psychotics and serial killers on the one end of the continuum but but saints and geniuses uh, on the other and yeah. so that was one of the things that i helped establish was that position that human beings were neither inherently good or evil but had a, a capacity for enormous good and enormous 
better quality of life. So this was not about recovering from mental illness. This was recovering from a, a limited point of view. I think I heard you say this in a prior interview that this was, I think, a line from your daughter, and you were talking about the 1960s, and she was mentioning that this may have been a word she invented, which was something like FUD, that in the 60s, you know, so it, when you're trying to make progress in life and you're trying to grow, you often fall straight on your face, something right. like that. And oh, that's right. No, that was uh, Maria, who's now a full professor <laughs> and no botanist. Um, but the word she invented was flump. And when flumps, one one goes into a situation where one has no idea what to do and you just show up and throw yourself in. Uh, my other daughter, more sensible and more cautious, we describe her as saying she would hover about the edges until she saw what was going on and figured it out and then go in. Yeah. And yeah. I'd say that the psychedelic people, to the extent that we made mistakes in the 60s, it was from an excess of flumping. Um, and we were also, that was also the first time in human history uh, when birth control for women was available. Yeah. And that the, the sexual revolution, as it was called, uh, was possible because both sexes could participate in it. And yeah. that that was um, that was disruptive to the theories, not to the actual living experience, but to the theories of many, many people that uh, free sexual expression, because it had always been dangerous, must be bad. Um, so that was among the areas. Uh, I'm just remembering the uh, another group, humanistic psychology, uh, had its annual convention in a hotel in Washington. And the hotel afterwards asked them never to come back. And the, they, they said that the, they could handle some of the nudity, but when people were making love on the stairs, in the, of the lobby stairs, that was too much. And I thought, they're right. Yeah. <laughs> That yeah. that flaunting one's liberation is not yet liberation. You just said this that you know during when the psychedelic movement became illegal or when psychedelics became illegal that you know you're a, more inclined to be a law-abiding man and citizen. What in general during those decades was your primary you know focus of emphasis in? your own professional work, you already alluded to the work that you were doing with um, transpersonal psychology, but what, what did you see were your opportunities to stay as a legal participating member in society, yet also you know, keep the flame alive to some degree? Well, I'm not sure I was much of a flame keeper aliver, except in, in uh, helping to establish both humanistic psychology about human caring and uh, basically positive psychology. Uh, and transpersonal. I earned a living doing a succession of odd jobs. And uh, my children, when they were in grammar school, said, you know, the hardest, the hard question we get, Dad, uh, is what does your father do? <laughs> and, and it wasn't that he's interested in psychedelics. That wasn't their problem. It was, what does he actually do for a living? Because he seems to do a lot of things. So I was a uh, uh, management consultant. I was a professor. Um, I also managed 20,000 acres of Mississippi forest land for a number of years, hmm. uh, mostly because that was, it was, it, I had married, had children, you know, bought a house when one could still do that. Yeah. Uh, 
so I had in in one sense a very kind of conventional life, um, but I also um, with a with a friend we did start start a an independent graduate school um, where we were teaching quote transpersonal psychology, which meant that our students had a much much higher um, kind of uh, barrier to getting their PhD than I had at Stanford because we were demanding not only intellectual rigor. And when we were investigated by you know state and federal agencies, they said, you know, your dissertations are really good, meaning we didn't expect it. Yeah. Uh, but also our students had to have capacity in a physical skill enough so they could teach it like Aikido or yoga. Um, they had to have spent a certain amount of time under trained meditation. Um, and they also had to uh, at least work in some kind of aesthetic with arts. So that we felt we were trying to train not a psychologist, but a human being that could move in any direction. And my own career was a kind of uh, messy model. Um, I mean, I, I have rarely had a job that I that on entering it, I was qualified for. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into the the research that you've done about microdosing specifically pretty quickly, but I just to clarify and to to go a little deeper about your own experiences with yeah. psychedelics in the in the 60s you, you know for for you, you know, when you think about your life narrative or you know your your own development do do you have a delineation between you know Jim Fadiman prior to the gift that you were given from Richard Alpert and and afterwards what do you what do you think the psychedelic experiences that you had how did they really affect you what, what do you think they helped you with helped to reveal well how do you make sense of that um well i think i've, I've kind of mentioned that 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 transcendent experience when i fly yeah. by jesus and others <laughs> um, you don't you know if you're if you're very fortunate you don't recover from that mm. and i don't think i've recovered it is it is always colored it's been the lens through which i see everything else yeah uh, so <clears throat> however one of the parts of that lens is no dogma because one of the other things that you become very clear about is that the capacity of of jim fadiman and similar you know people to truly understand the nature of that experience is not possible yeah and the the image that that works for me is um imagine that you're trying to find uh, understand the ecology of a coral reef maybe 70,000 species different things and you you ask an, a resident who's lived their entire life on that reef and knows nothing else and and therefore that's your your you're going to ask and so you say to this parrotfish please describe to me the ecology of the reef and the parrotfish looks at you and says are you effing crazy he says, I am a parrotfish. My brain is, is about the size of an almond. I, haven't, I can barely survive with the hundred or so species that I deal with. And the idea that I would have a great understanding of the entire nature of things um, suggests that you as a human are really don't understand much of anything. Yeah. So that my ignorance has continued to increase. Um, and I feel very comfortable with it. And that's that's not a small item because uncertainty is a state, and it's a state for many people extremely uncomfortable. 
Yeah. One way out of uncertainty is dogmatism and rigidity. The the other possibility is that uncertainty is the nature of things and being comfortable in it allows you a lot more flexibility. So for a while I taught in design engineering at Stanford. Um, my least qualified that I was least qualified for because <laughs> I'd never had an engineering course and I was teaching only in the graduate department. But what my course was about, and it was the introductory course for maybe 100, 150 students, was to dis- help them distinguish, were they comfortable in design, high uncertainty, because you're creating things that had never been invented or, and all of them had an engineering background, or should you stay in some kind of engineering where a great deal of the work is improvements? And improving something is a way different task. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I have an iPhone of some vintage, and the newer iPhones are smaller, batteries last longer, uh, and it has a few more bells and whistles, and the camera is improved. That's all incredibly important creative work, but imagining an iPhone is of a different nature. Yeah. And so the one thing I've seen in the psychedelic world in general, and me in particular, is that flexibility of um, of being comfortable in uncertainty. And just to ask one final question about that, because I think you're right. Do you get the sense that the lingering resistance to research, to curiosity about psychedelics stems to come from individuals who are wedded to a dogma or an ideology that uncertainty, losing a grip on a firm perspective of life makes them deeply uncomfortable, makes them anxious, and that's part of the resistance? I'd say that that particular the quality of needing certainty um, way extends way way beyond psychedelics. Psychedelics actually are it's very hard to find resistance these days. Yeah. It's not hard to find ignorance because you know it's it's a subject and a certain number of people are interested and the rest aren't. But uh, having been watching the media for the past fifty to sixty years. Um, it's difficult to find an article that says psychedelics are inherently bad for you. Yeah. Um, one, because, uh, and, and there's a shift. There's a shift. There was an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, something about psychedelics. And the one thing nice about the New York Times is if you read the comments, one is there's lots of them. Mm. They're literate. And um, you get a feeling really of that audience, not of the, United States in general, but of that audience. And there was a certain number of people that said, um, God didn't want you to take psychedelics. You should go, you should only do things that are natural or whatever, kind of an against. And it doesn't really help and people go crazy. And I've seen those forever. The difference was the counter comments were, what's your evidence? Mm. And suddenly I realized for the first time in decades that the against people were on the defensive, that they no longer could just say, um, I'm against this because I have no reason that I possibly know of, but somehow I'm against it, or my grandmother was against it. Um, And people are saying, well, I'm fine if you're against it. what, What is it you're against? Are you against people who are depressed not being depressed? 
Are you against people who are dying feeling okay about it? Um, so that that's that's a cultural shift in the general population, where instead of a a large against, which is what the government, you know, if you listen to the government for the past forty or fifty years, that's what they said. Uh, say no to drugs, N O, instead of no to drugs, K N O W. Mm. Uh, and we all, uh, some of us, remember the wonderful advertisement of a of this is your brain on drugs and it's a scrambled egg. And actually, your brain is not a scrambled egg. I just have to break it to you. <laughs> um, what we're finding, you know, with psychedelic, with a scrambled egg, we're actually finding that the brain, when it has a psychedelic to help it, um, is more flexible, hmm. uh, can think in more directions, is in touch with more parts of itself, so to speak. So that the negativity is now based on I don't quite know what's going on versus the older negativity is I don't know what's going on, but I know it's bad. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually uh, almost stunned at the lack of negativity. Now, partly it's also because suddenly there's money in psychedelics. Hmm. And it is amazing how greed moves the research forward. Uh, some of your listeners will remember when cannabis was illegal everywhere. Uh, now it's illegal in a number of places, but but not so much. Um, yeah. And what happened that moved it along was people making a lot of money off of cannabis. So for the first time, um, let us say psychedelics never had a lobbyist in Washington. Now they do. Yeah. So they're pre they're part of the culture in a way that the 60s weren't. The 60s were against the culture. They were the counterculture. No one talks about psychedelics as a counterculture anymore. They simply talk about it as, gee, these are interesting substances that seem to help a lot of people, and maybe we should look more you know, into it more. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge shift. It is. There are a few quotes of yours that I, I would love to read um okay. that I, th I thought might be useful for the, for the listeners to hear sure <laughs> here are a few of them and this is me quoting you you have been fine-tuned over millions of years to to desire to be in harmony with the natural world to be curious about your own mind and to recognize the essential unity of which you are a part whether or not you ever cho whether or not you ever choose to use psychedelic experiences as part of your own self-discovery your decision should be an informed one the second one I wanted to read. Wait, is, wait, wait. I like that yes. one. <laughs> Whoever one. he was, I like what he said. <laughs> the increased awareness, this is you again. The increased awareness offered by psychedelics come in different forms. In higher doses taken in safe and sacred settings, they facilitate recognition of one's intimate relationship with all living things. In moderate doses, they facilitate awareness of the intricate psychodynamic structures of one's individual consciousness. In low doses, they facilitate awareness of solutions to, techni to technical and artistic problems. And then the last one I wanted to read, which I thought was uh, kind of um, appropriate for some of the subjects we just talked about. In the scientific world, fear is usually called skepticism. Now, I would love to talk about the, you know, the the research you are probably best known for, which is uh, the Fatiman protocol and microdosing in general. Yeah. And I know you know a lot about 
the variety of psychedelics that exist in the world, what kind of specifically each one seems to be tailored to address in terms of human psychological ailments or anxieties. Um, as it relates to microdosing specifically, how did this area of psychedelic research research become of interest to you personally? Was that again your own experience with microdosing that you know you you felt like there was something there worth pursuing? What's the background story on microdosing for you personally? Well, my interest had been in the other end, the high yeah. end, the transcendent experience for which one needs to have space, time, quiet, a guide, a lot of stuff. Um, and microdosing, which didn't have any of that, had zero interest. And had a zero interest for almost everyone in psychedelic research. It's like we couldn't even look that into the small because the large was so exciting. Yeah. You know, you if you look at the small, the lights went out, you know, nobody, nobody uh, saw you know, God in a flower, um, and nobody saw that they were immortal, none of that. Um, but a friend of mine, Robert Fort, who also is very important in uh, early MDMA uh, kind of interest when it was legal, um, told me that he had uh, talked with Albert Hoffman, the person who first synthesized LSD, and who talked about very low doses, and said that they were beneficial. In fact, he said that he was sorry that his his company, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, never would do research in those very small areas because he said if they had, there would have been no market for Ritalin. Mm. Now, today we would say no market for Adderall or ProVigil. Um, well, that was interesting. And then uh, Robert said that he had been advised that he might try it, that he should microdose himself. The term didn't exist then, that he should take this very low dose. Um, and he was in a relationship and that it would be good for both of them. And he told me that his uh, the girl he was in a relationship with found that she didn't like it, that she said it made her too aware of her emotions. Mm. And I went away from literally having lunch with Robert thinking, well, that's curious. I mean, um, I don't know why anyone will waste their time with little teeny doses, but Hoffman is, you know, <laughs> worth talking to, worth listening to. And uh, some opportunities came up to to talk to other people about the possibility. Um, and I was living in a subculture where if you said, have you tried this? A lot of people would say, no, I haven't. What is it? I will. Yeah. And so I asked people, would they be interested in a term that I think I, I thought I developed, the words out in the language well before that, microdosing, meaning uh, LSE comes in micrograms. So it seemed like a, a nice term. And what I got from people is they liked it. That was pretty much the level I got. And then I said, well, since you like it, would you be willing to write me a note and saying what it is you like? And that's how it started. And it turns out that I had no idea, certainly, of the word microdose. I had no idea um, that anyone had ever discovered this but, but Hoffman and me. Hmm. Uh, and at one point, I was feeling, wow, I'm really important. I am discovering a new use of psychedelics. And an anthropologist friend said to me, did it ever occur to you that the people who've used this for hundreds or thousands of years might have tried low doses? And I thought, oh, 
<laughs> and uh, now a friend of mine, Adam Brandage, is, is finishing a book um, talking about all over the world indigenous uses of microdoses uh, for usually for enhanced both for healing and for enhanced um, kind of physical, emotional, and uh, visual capacity. If you're in a hunting society, for example, a hunting and gathering society, hunters whose vision is better do better. Yeah. Hunters whose reflexes are faster do better. Hunters who have more endurance do better. And it turns out in many of those cultures where psychedelics are available in some sort, that's what it's used for. So it turned out I was rediscovering a very ancient use. And the rediscovery simply went in, in, since I didn't know about the early use, I had several years where I could pretty much discover without feeling embarrassed uh, that I was treading on indigenous uh, toes. So as more and more people began to try microdosing, more and more different stories appeared. And that is true to this day. When we talk about that word, microdosing, right? Yeah. I know it's a very basic question. What, it, what does that mean to you exactly? Well, what it means is a dose of, of a consciousness-altering substance that does not go up to the level of visual distortion, does not have what we, we call um, hallucinogenic effects, that does not interfere with functioning, that does not interfere with cognitive focusing, that does not interfere with physical flexibility, uh, that does not interfere with kind of emotional connectedness. So we're having a substance that seems to make your system work better, but not to the point where it's overloaded. Mm. Um, we all know, or most of us know, that if you have one drink, you are somewhat more social, you're somewhat more verbal, you're somewhat uh, more available in a social sense. And if you continue to do that, have more and more drinks, you eventually lose all that. So that a low dose of alcohol is not the same as it's not a it's not a tiny high dose. Mm. And uh, microdosing is not a small small psychedelic experience. A lot of people who are interested are thinking, "Wow, I've had these massive experiences, but they're they're really massive and difficult." I'd like to just have like a quickie. <laughs> And that's not what a microdose is. A microdose simply seems to be a way of improving the overall functioning of the system so that what is out of equilibrium can get back to or closer than equilibrium. And that turns out for many people to be amazing, um, amazing help. Yeah, it does seem to me as well that for people that are uh, rather intimidated by the prospect of a full-on psychedelic experience. I, I just know this in my own personal life that you know, stepping, dipping a toe in the water with a much smaller dose, a microdose, is just more appealing. Um, well, I think, yeah. And, and it has a it, well. Let's take kind of one of the major discoveries in the in the you know, what's called the psychedelic renaissance, which is really a revival of what we did in the sixties. Psychedelics under high dose, safe guides, alleviates depression, alleviates treatment resistant depression, which means people who've had a lot of treatments that didn't work. That's really remarkable. 
And it's about 80% of people um, really have an incredible breakthrough and they, they say, I'm not depressed. Meaning, not that I'm better, but I'm not depressed. Yeah. Well, microdosing over a period of a few weeks um, has about the same effect, which is about 80% of people say, I'm back. I have all my emotions. I'm not depressed. Um, so these are two different paths to, in a sense, the same way, but one is without any, um, without any excitement. You know, it's, it's what we learn, um, when you take a vitamin, which is if you take it once, nothing. Yeah. Because it needs to accumulate within the body and the body needs to begin to adapt to having it, which increases its effectiveness and so forth. And microdosing fits that model very well. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a key point that I wanted to go over to you, which is you know, to the best of your knowledge, and I know you've been researching this for a long time, what does seem to be in terms of the the dosage quantity and the frequency kind of the sweet spot for most people with you know microdosing for the kind of improvements that they may be after whether it be depression or mood etc now uh, let's just talk a uh, dose for a moment because the term sweet spot you see is a very interesting one it's all of us know what it means <laughs> yeah but if you go to your bathroom and open that little door above the sink and you look at prescriptions there's no sweet spot yeah there are differences maybe 10 or 25 or 50 of something but if your sweet spot is 32 there's the system isn't designed for that. The reality is, however, reality is designed for that. I mean, you know, when you sit down for dinner and it's serve yourself, yeah, you are looking for the sweet spot. You're not looking at how much food can you eat or how little can you eat. You're looking for what's exactly what will work for that meal only yeah. with those foods only. It's a sweet spot. What happens with microdosing is people... Um, basically find that if they take a little too much, they begin to have a feeling as if they're beginning to have a psychedelic experience. And the, the term the term of art is called coming on. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling you're coming on a little and you're not, but you're feeling that feeling, that says you're having too much. Or if you're somewhat distracted from what you want to be paying attention to. That's too much. And so people then say, well, I'll take less. And if they drop below a certain amount, then they feel that nothing has occurred. And so they come back up. So people literally, and it's uh, the now, now there's microdose coaching in a number of countries, mm. um, are help. People get help in figuring out what's the sweet spot. And most of the negative um, events that happen with microdosing almost all are eliminated if you cut the dose in half. Mm. So we're talking about something that's very individual specific. And the the rough numbers are between a, a 20th and a 10th and a 20th of what's called a recreational dose, um, which is what you would say might be a concert dose. And again, this says something about generations. The concert dose, by the way, used to be called a museum dose. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because it would be high enough so that you would definitely know you were in an altered state. And uh, for any of your audience who's ever been to a concert, that light show um, is 
is directly derived from um, psychedelic experiences. Uh, and the first light shows were designed to go along with taking psychedelics in a public place. Mm. And how about the fre the frequency, right? I, I know I have heard you speak about this a little bit in prior conversations. Paul Stamets, I think, has his own views yeah. of how often, you know, one, and again, yeah. I think you, one thing I like about both of you is the you know, personal adaptation and tinkering to kind of find, as we said, the sweet spot for an, an individual. But in general, what's your, what tends to be your perspective on frequency? Well, in general, it's not much not often and take time off mm. okay now let's break that down a little yeah <laughs> not much is as only as much as feels correct that's the sweet spot mm. not often <clears throat> is there uh there are every every different what we're calling protocols which really just schedules how often you take it all have breaks of of one to two days during the week and the take time off is people who are using microdosing, say, for a month or two, um, almost all the groups around the world independently came to the notion that it seemed like a good idea now and then to take a, a week or a month away from using. Part of it because it's anti-addictive, um, and this allows the body to operate without it. Um, as as makes sense, it's like you don't you don't if you're going to the gym to increase your muscular strength you don't stay there all day yeah you push your muscles a little and then the rest of your day your body adjusts to what you've done readjusts you know hundreds of chemicals um and when you return to the gym you're in a better position uh you you're improving from a different base rate yeah or a different stage so uh the protocol that i came up with which has become popular was not at all designed for what it's used for. Um, science is based on fumbling around, getting going in the wrong door, making mistakes, uh, and and uh, microdosing fits modern science. Hmm. Uh, I realized early on that one of the curious things about microdosing is that people said, although the substance is pretty much gone from the body within a few hours. People said the second day was almost as good and for some people better than the first day. <clears throat> well, I was trying to find out what were the effects. So I wanted people to be able to go down to their normal pre-microdose state and then come up again and have more observations. So I suggested to people, if they didn't mind, for a month, take it on day one, take two days off, the second day being we, we know about and the third day should be bringing them down to baseline. And therefore, I would get like 10 different uptakes to that people would observe. Um, now, it's happened after around a month, people said, you know, the third day seems like the other days. Hmm. So it began to, the system had now adjusted to a, a, a healthier level. Um, but that was where that quote protocol came from. It was my way of trying to find out stuff. It was never suggested as the best possible way because I hadn't any idea. Paul Stamets came up with either take it for five days and take two days off, or take it for four days and take three days off. And I've heard Paul say both. <clears throat> so I asked him, I said, wait, 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 wait. You know, I get this question of protocol. 
um, and you have these two protocols. And he says, well, you can't be too rigid. And what he was saying is people have to figure it out. Um, another protocol is every other day. Another protocol is weekends only. Um, what people find is what works best for them. And that's different from the pharmacological model where you have very limited aid. And it's also the medical model yeah. where you're asking someone else to tell you what you should put in your body. And often when you report back that, yeah, I'm not depressed anymore, but I'm constipated and angry most of the time. And you're told, well, that's a side effect. Now, you're ready for a major revelation? Yes. Um, this was an, I realized an ad once for uh, alternative medicine. It says there are no side effects. Mm. There are only effects. Yeah. And I suddenly got side effects. was this brilliant marketing tool. Because obviously, um, it's only effects. Something affects you. And either it's, and you're taking it because you want a positive beneficial effect. And you have also negative effects. And when you begin to look at people's medical closets, particularly older people, they're, they're, a number of their medications are to counter the side effects of prior medications. And it's a scary kind of escalation. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a woman who, who works with people who uh, are not going to get better. They're in kind of very bad shape. And they have, they say, come in with a stack of medicines. And she said, normally I could easily eliminate 70% of the medications they were on because they were basically medications for medication. So psychedelics are a lot cleaner than that, which is their, their effects are so microdosing, especially their effects are so general that you don't, um, that you don't want to pack in more different kinds of psychedelics or so forth. Though, again, Paul Stamets has found, and we now have data, that people who add the lion's mane mushroom, which has cognitive benefits, and add niacin, which seems to uh, help the, the, the microdoses permeate the body, do report better results than people who just use the microdose. Hmm. That's recently in a major study in science reports uh, of about, I think, 9,000 people. Yeah. Let's say that someone tinkers with the frequency and determines for themselves that it is every other day, that that seems to be uh, the, the sweet spot for them for getting the effects that they, that they want. And let's, let's talk about psilocybin and maybe LSD specifically. What, what is the range of the specific dose that you know, may need some tinkering, may need some customization for a bespoke Sure. Um, prescription for an individual, but in general, what what's the the quantity there that would well, likely fit in, into the microdose? In general, and and over the years, I've lowered this range as <laughs> reported in. Okay, um, originally I used to I talked 10, 10, uh, 10 micrograms, um, which is what I thought Hoffman took, which was turns out also another of my mistakes. Um, the the range is between perhaps seven and 12 micrograms. These are now millionths of a gram. Yeah. That's a reasonable range. There are lots of people, there are more people who benefit from less and very few people who report benefiting from more. With psilocybin, we're talking dried mushrooms 
it's 0.1 grams, a tenth of a gram to four tenths of a gram. Yeah. It used to be two tenths of a gram and five tenths of a gram, but too many people said, no, that's too high. And I recently, it was on one of the important research sites in my world, which is called Citizen Science, which is real world results. And there's a, a subedit on Reddit called Microdosing. And there's 200,000 members. So you get a lot of information. And someone wrote in and said, I'm finding that one-tenth of a gram is too much. Anyone else have this issue? And about 10 or 15 people said, yeah, they also were taking less than that. Hmm. And that was that worked for them. So the sweet spot is a very individual one. The higher end of 0.4 or 12 micrograms is about where you begin to have the that you notice that you're taking it. Now, again, one of my major mistakes, and you'll see it all over the literature, is called subperceptual. Yeah. Okay. And I just didn't have a right word. What I meant to what it would be is subpsychedelic effects, but that's nobody likes that either. Um, so now the term is subhallucinogenic, not interfering with any cognitive or physical activity, something like that. So you yeah. you and, and let me explain the difference between what what taking a little too much is like. It's not it doesn't shatter your world. You don't see God. Um, but there was a guy in 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 some kind of sales job, and he was microdosing at about ten micrograms, and he was very happy and reporting nice things. And then, as we will all do, if some is good, more is better. Mm. So he took 20 one day and he went to work and he was at a sales meeting. And he realized that he didn't care much about the product. In fact, as he reflected on it, he didn't care much about sales or this job. Now, what he did was very wise. He went home <laughs> and he didn't take 20 again. Okay. That's one finds out usually about one sweet spot by making some kind of mistake, but not a very serious one. Yeah, I know this is. I've gotten this from Paul. <laughs> just just to put a bow on that that story, you know, how, what what is your takeaway from that? That he he had this revelation that perhaps this was not the job for him. You know. Oh well, the part of him. Um, very few people with a higher dose of psychedelics are interested in their job. Yeah. Okay. It's why people take vacations. <laughs> that their job is not that is not engrossing enough, is not meaningful enough, and so forth. So it's perfectly normal recognition that a part of you doesn't like the job. And and one of the ways I've learned, particularly as a management consultant, is one of the ways you find out how much you like your job is um how little would they need to pay you to keep you? Yeah. And if it turns out that you would, you know, that, that many of us have have worked harder at the things we're not paid for. And that's how, we, because we really want to do them. And yeah. when you're really fortunate, you get paid for what you would be doing for free. Yeah. I think that's a good rule of thumb. You know, I, I you used the word vitamin earlier, and I know I've heard Paul Stamet say this that you know his in his view and i've heard him also talk about lion's mane and stacking that you know his, his view is that psilocybin essentially is a nootropic vitamin and, mm. and i don't know if, if that tends to be your conclusion as well from your research but it, if it is it you know is is it your view that 
for a person who is interested in their own flourishing and human flourishing, they're getting a lot out of, you know, stack out of microdosing in whatever manner and frequency seems to work best for them that this really might be something to consider like you would want to have a steady diet of vitamin C for your life, for you know the rest of your life, that this also might be something that you would want to add to a, a diet for healthy living. Well, see, the nice thing is I have, a, I have opinions, but the nice thing is I have hundreds and hundreds of people who've written their reports. Yeah. So I always go by them yeah. <clears throat> because that's how I learn. And one of the things when I said we'd ask people for a month to keep records and so forth. And then the question we asked a few months later is, what did you do when you were no longer, you know, writing us every day? What did you, what was your microdosing? Now that you're on your own, you don't have to do what we've asked. More people said, I'm using it less often than once every three days, maybe 30, 40%. Some of them said, I'm still doing it the same. And a number said, I, I stopped. That was fine. I got what I needed. Um, and again, individuals make the difference. And a, a woman who took it for herself for depression <clears throat> had a major breakthrough, felt wonderful. She said, I turned on a lot of my friends who were depressed. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, that's why I'm calling you because I have a question, which is almost all of them reported, you know, a major improvement in depression. But now it's a few months later and several said, you know, I took it for a couple of months and my depression is pretty well gone and I stopped. And she said, but I have other friends who said I took it for a couple of months and I felt fine. But when I stopped, I got depressed again. What's the difference between those two groups? <clears throat> and I thought, wow, that's terrific research. Yeah. That's the kind of research that you just can't get in a, you know, in a university lab. So I said, well, is there a difference between the two groups? And as we talked about them, she we realized that the people who had stopped, basically their lives had been working okay before, and they were depressed, and now their lives were working better, and they weren't depressed. The other group had difficult life situations, meaning if you're depressed because your child has a long-term serious illness, and you can alleviate the depression so you can be a better parent, you don't, you're not alleviating the cause. Yeah. So that uh, or if you're in a divorce or, you know, a lot of different, or you're in a job that you really don't like, or you're in a job that you like, but it's kind of toxic. Um, you need to keep, you need to keep adding back your own uh, better health image or, or capacity. So that's one of the things we're learning is people take microdosing. Um, and what we're finding is for a, for a while, and some people take it longer than that. And when we were, uh, we being in this case, Sophia Korb was my research genius for, for a couple of years when we were putting this together. And we asked people for 30 days. And for many people, particularly younger people, that was way too long to do something. <laughs> but we got enough, a few hundred. But Sophia called me one day and she said, you know, we have four people <coughs> who are still reporting in after 100 days. And see, this is where citizen science is nice. So she said, so I wrote them. <laughs> and I said, why are you doing this? All of them were to ill to the point of terminal. These were people who were dying. 
but they found that they felt better and functioned better with microdosing. And there was one in particular, a young woman, uh, and she said that her parents had, had really been against her taking anything psychedelic for the usual 60s reasons. But she did, and she was, she was you know, nice. She was happier. Her, her chemotherapy was less terrible and so forth and what she wrote us she said you know uh, i i want to keep microdosing uh, because i want to go to school um maybe for one more semester and that's before she dies okay so what we were looking at is people who are using microdosing in a in a very different way than someone who says you know i'd like to be more creative and be able to spend more time coding and yeah. i'm remembering another young man who said i only I only microdose when I have a coding problem. So that's a range. And when you deal with, with real-world evidence, you get those kind of necessary stories that fill in the gaps in, in the kind of generic knowledge. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I know that is another aspect of your research is the cognitive enhancements that seem to be um, possible with people who you know, tinker with microdosing. And I know you are either familiar with or, or led the research that um, brought, you know, kind of technical individuals who had an enduring, seemingly insurmountable problem that they were having difficulty solving into a formal study with an administration of a, uh, some level of a psychedelic substance in order to see if that actually would um, help help them crack those pro those problems, and I know we've talked about Paul a few times, but there's a an amazing image that he brings up a lot in his interviews and his lectures that I know is also featured in the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, in which, <clears throat> and I would encourage anyone to look this up because of how mind blowing it is. What seemed to be the you know the significant increase in neural connectedness in the brain under psychedelic influence and i'd love to talk to you about that research experiment that yeah i know that you're familiar with and and what you what we learned from that and what you think the takeaways really are from you know what how how psychedelics might be able to help people with you know intellectual pursuits and and creative oh. pursuits <laughs> um this is now we have to go back to the 60s yeah where um people are using it to quote blow their minds or to drop out uh we're using it in our little clinic in menlo park kind of like an outpatient clinic and and people that are just interested and willis Harmon, one of the major researchers who's a professor of engineering electrical engineering at stanford says you know i wonder if we could use these doses uh for intellectual scientific problem solving and with my usual openness, I thought this was really foolish because, you know, my experience is you let go and, you know, you see Jesus and you fly through the universe. Why? And someone says, well, how about, you know, this problem in, in, in this conductivity through this new semiconductor? And you say, wait a minute, that just doesn't hold my attention. Okay, so I didn't think it was going to work. But we did a, a trial run. And this was uh, a dose, not this super high dose. This was a dose equivalent of 100 micrograms of LSD. And 
what we did is we we asked people who were serious senior scientists who were working on a problem that they had failed at for the at least several months. And the reason for that is we wanted them emotionally attached because these are the kinds of people in our culture that don't have a lot of failure. Yeah. So it hurts. And we said, we will set up a day for you where you will be able to be more creative. Now, keep in mind the quote placebo, which is what all studies do. They stack it as high as they can with positivity to get, because that's what they're looking for. So we told people that they would be able to do that. And we had people come in in a group of four. And they, some of them knew each other from different industries. And then we said, you know, you can describe your problem in like a minute or two. So people had some idea what other people were doing. And then we're going to give you a certain amount of psychedelics. And we're going to suggest for the morning that you just watch your mind. And we're going to give you music and a headphone and a place to lie down. This was set in a, in a living room-like setting. And in the afternoon, work on your problem. Now, what was fascinating is two things. One is they worked on their problems. But two is they didn't wander off into personal exploration. Uh, they didn't follow visionary experiences. They didn't uh, relive their childhood trauma. They didn't do any of the things that our clinical patients did. They bought the notion that they were there to do something they very much wanted to do and that they were getting help. And according to a newspaper article written some years later, nice summary, uh, 48 problems, 44 solutions. And they ranged from um, a something connected to the Stanford Linear Accelerator to make the beams go a little better, a little cheaper. Um, several architecture problems with clients who had been totally dissatisfied with four or five uh, full plans for, for projects. Um, a, a new micronome, this is a cutting device for kind of microscopic slices, a whole a range of problems. Yeah. And what we found, and we also gave some some creativity tests, as they're called. These are There's a whole literature called creativity, and it's really all about creativity tests. Um, and we gave a few of those. Um, as someone summarized those, all the results of all the tests were higher. And over the 50 or so years since that study, and it says something about um, psychology and testing, no one has ever asked about the tests. Everyone understood that what was interesting was the real life stuff. Yeah. And what people did is they made great progress on things that ended up as publications, as patents, and as products. So this is, again, real-life testing against um, against whatever they were finding out. This wasn't, you know, I saw God in all the flowers, <clears throat> and no, no one ever says, prove that, okay? But if someone says, it looks like this lighting design, which had been failing, is now resolvable by turning such and such and such and such, and you, do, you build one and the, the light goes on. So that was the creativity study. And while it has not been replicated in the science world, um, there are great many people in Silicon Valley whose companies and initial product came from their own individual work. Yeah. Uh, and there was a whole period in Silicon Valley where 
It was not at all surprising when the heads of research or the heads of companies said my breakthrough idea came from something in a psychedelic experience. And of course, we have Steve Jobs, who did not invent the Apple computer based on his psychedelic work, but his psychedelic work gave him the impetus to look in that direction and also gave him a deep commitment to what he called elegance. Mm. And if one opened Apple products, and this is still true today, the inside is beautiful. Yeah. When you open most products developed by electrical engineers and you know solid state engineers and so forth, it's a mess because nobody's going to see it. Well, there's another level where nature likes elegance. And so creativity is a whole nother world. It's obviously, there's no psychopathology here. And we're dealing with people um, who have high capacities uh, who are stuck. And the, uh, the results are well known in the culture. Um, and the, interestingly, the people, several people have tried to replicate it, but they all leave out the necessity of desire that people really wanted to solve these problems. And that is the critical, in this sense, it's focusing a, an, exper an experience which can go in many, many directions into a focused area of your choice. Now, this is not now dissimilar from the psychotherapy studies that are with psychedelics, where you say, we're going to focus on your trauma. And people have a high investment in not being run by their trauma, so they're willing to focus. And as I think of it, and this is really, I hadn't thought of this before, that's probably a better mapping of the creativity study than, than rep, trying to replicate the creativity study. Yeah. There's a great there was a great personal incentive for them to to uh, solve the problem. And if I'm right, Jim, I, I think I have heard this multiple times that Francis Crick had admitted that the breakthrough in his research that allowed him to visualize the double helix stemmed from an LSD experience that he had. Um, well, there's a there's a bit of a fuss in the literature. Um, the book that I wrote at the time said. Yes, there was a newspaper reporter that Crook told him exactly that, that he had the vision ah, of a double helix. Yeah, and that came out of a low dose, you know, kind of our creativity level psychedelic material. Um, and that he said to the reporter, but you can't report this till after I'm dead. Then there's another group that says, yeah, he took a lot of psychedelics later, but not then. And the answer is. We don't know, but we do know that Gary Mullis, who is a Nobel Prize winner, um, that his breakthrough in in understanding how to how to replicate very small amounts of of, of matter or of kind of natural substances, so that you could actually see and measure them, which is what we now call you know when you get a, a scrap of DNA, you can you can build enough so you can say this is from that person. Hmm. Um, he said, I did not do that. I did not have that idea, that breakthrough, which led to the Nobel Prize under psychedelics. But by the time I was working on it, I was able to put myself inside a molecule and look around. Uh, he actually had the breakthrough when he was driving with his girlfriend in Northern California, I think mm -hmm. on a rainy night. So, um, But he had obviously all the pieces of it. 
and and that he says he was able to to kind of go into molecular structure in a way um that was you know kind of physical rather than uh, theoretical yeah i know we're getting towards the the end of the conversation and i'd love to maybe focus on a couple of other subjects before we close off here today and the the primary one is about the alleviation of human suffering that seems to be possible through these substances and specifically with microdosing and i know we talked about you know the tinkering with, as an individual with you know your own biology your own experience what seem we've talked about depression and and end of life care what does it seem what what seems to be happening to people when they are doing consistent microdosing maybe maybe just to back up like the ailments that and i know i've heard you say this in prior interviews that specific psychedelics or pathogens are more seem to be more targeted for addressing um specific psychological uh illnesses or difficulties that people may have than others but in general what kind of suffering human suffering seems to be addressable with uh, a consistent dose of microdosing where is the hope for people that are really having a hard time in well, in exploring these as possibilities well there's two levels one is mental illness is a very kind of fuzzy messy thing yeah. it's the only it's the only area in medicine where every four or five years they remake all the definitions yeah nobody ever says let's redefine the appendix nobody ever yeah. says but people say let's redefine depression let's redefine uh manic depression by the way went away it's now bipolar yeah uh, disassociation went away for another. basically curiously the boxes keep getting with new new labels human suffering seems to be about how one how one deals with the illusion of separation mm. the illusion of separation is that my being ends at my fingertips and what people report again few thousand cases is people are more attuned to and spend time in nature when they have had psychedelic experience this is of any any level yeah people in nature report that they feel better and that there's something about being in the natural world that is inherently healing now we also know something that from japan called forest bathing and it turns out that if you're walking in a forest you are literally getting showered with um antibiotics and antivirals that trees are putting out all the time because they have the same problem you do of viruses and bacteria liking to eat them mm. so literally you're getting a healing shower being in nature we know when you go to the ocean you feel better now something about negative ions perhaps changing in the air but you feel better so one of the alleviations of human suffering indirectly is people becoming more attuned to the natural world the other attunement again hundreds of cases is they feel less alone less alienated less separated and this is independent of again diagnosis um and when you you know when there are other people in your life who you like and they like you you are feeling better then you have 
what we only have begun to touch is the alleviation of pain. Yeah. And there's an amazing number of, of microdose um, reports of different kinds of physical illness. And that generally, um, I get a call, I get a letter now and then that says, can I use it for Parkinson's? And the answer is the people who've had Parkinson's who've used microdoses don't report much improvement in Parkinson's, but they become more social again. Mm. They lose a lot of the underlying depression, which if you have Parkinson's, you have some depression and you're right, mm. but you don't have to live that way. Yeah. So the alleviation of human suffering happens at all levels. And that, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a parallel and the parallel is that um, when some products from the new world called, say, for instance, the potato came to Europe, it made a difference in the amount of famines that Europe was experiencing because crops fail, weather is difficult, there's no storage, etc. Um, and the changing of having new foodstuffs shifted literally the life experience of millions of Europeans because they could they had a healthier diet. And a, or at least a 12 month a year diet. Hmm. Um, microdosing and psyche, psychedelics in general improve human functioning. Human, when, and the other side of that is when people are not alienated and unhappy, they are less likely to be unkind to other people. And there's some fairly disturbing research that says you can actually measure certain kinds of brain patterns and you can tell whether you're measuring a, a United States Republican or a United States Democrat mm. that you've got to the point where there are literally you know, differences where the, the um, I mean, the curious thing, those of us who are not Republicans puzzle over how can they believe so much stuff with such ferocity that doesn't seem to have any physical evidence. And the answer is, when you begin to look into who they are, they are people who have, who have not succeeded in the, in, the, in the current culture as well as they thought they should. So there's some very large possibilities. And in the 60s, the notion was that psychedelics could wake people up and awakened people could take care of the world better. That probably has not changed. Hmm. But we now have a... Uh, microdosing kind of wakes you up very slowly and quietly, and it doesn't frighten your parents. Yeah. The last question I, I'd love to ask, and before I do that, I, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to to do this and for all of the you know public work and literature you have put out in the world. You know, I I personally have just benefited enormously from from it and from you know the the guidance and wisdom and research and encouragement that people like yourself are providing to the public when you think about the future uh, you know the a sane a sane future the the you know the best conceivable future that you can conjure up what is the role that you think um you know psychedelics and microdosing should have in a healthy flourishing society and and culture what what's the healthy way to think about this moving forward you know the dalai lama at one point says there's always going to be war let's have the weapons be less dangerous mm -hmm. so you know it's like wouldn't it be wonderful if you only could have hand-to-hand -hand combat mm -hmm. 
Okay, it would shift the nature of war because a lot of people wouldn't want to do that anymore. Um, mental health and physical health lead people to be kinder and more compassionate and care about others. It's very simple. And if it sounds like a lot of religious traditions, remember the religious traditions came from people's having a visionary experience. So that psychedelics are one of the things that can perhaps uh, prevent the species from its current eagerness for self-destruction. And I say that with, with sobriety and with sorrow, but we're, we're coming around the far turn and we need every possible tool we can to keep our, um, our intentions positive, um, to restore nature before we lose it and so forth and so on. Yeah. And psychedelics is one of those tools and there's lots of others. Um, but that's the one I know. So it's yeah. kind of like, you know, asking someone who works out in a gym every day, what should everyone do? And he says, yeah, you should work out in the gym every day. <laughs> and it's not bad advice, but it's obviously not for everyone. Psychod when someone says to me, you know, I'm thinking of having a psychedelic experience, but, and I say, don't do it. Don't take it. And they say, wait, 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 you haven't heard my, my reasons. And I say, if you have any reasons for not doing it, don't do it. That's sobering. Uh, yeah. Because one has to have a clarity. And that's the reason why people have guides and coaches, because it is the unknown. Um, just as if I say, you know, I'm in my 80s. I think I'm going to run a marathon. Well, someone's going to say, you know, why don't you get a running coach and kind of see what works for you? Uh, and there are people in their 80s who run marathons. Um, but they didn't start by running marathons. So it's the other thing is people in the psychedelic world, and I've been a consultant in a whole lot of different worlds, um, tend to be nicer to each other because they're not quite as um, attached to their identity. You know, when you read those quotes, and I said, not quite jokingly, you know, that's a great quote. Um, <laughs> That's because I don't feel identified with whoever wrote it. I know another part of me wrote it, um, but wow, he really, you know, I really like what he wrote. And that level of not being caught in your identity makes you much less likely to end up kind of rigid and bigoted and prejudiced and so forth. Yeah. Jim, this was such an honor for me to do this. And um, I want to thank you again for the time and all the effort that you've put into this line of research. and being a public voice for knowledge and information that you have and that you've accumulated over all the decades. Um, this is a real treat for me. So thanks again for doing this. Well, it's a treat to be able to share it with somebody who really cares and is interested and is very good at what they're doing, which is helping people hear what they won't find us elsewhere. So thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 